Hey, everybody. Welcome to The Afterword. I'm Dave Tish. The Afterwards are weekly podcast where we talk about what we didn't get to talk about. You know, I'm sort of a sports head, and when I was younger, I used to love watching Monday Night Football. It was the only televised night game for a long time there, and the league usually saved a really good matchup, and it put its best commentators in the booth. But back in 2000, ABC made the very curious decision to put in the booth Dennis Miller, the famous comedian and former Saturday Night Live alumni, in the booth alongside veteran broadcaster Al Michaels and former quarterback Dan Fouts. This did not work. And it didn't work not because Dennis Miller wasn't funny, he is, and not because he wasn't astute or didn't love sports, he does, he does love sports, and he was very clearly a fan of the game. It's because Dennis Miller's brand of intellectual comedy was so highbrow, so educated, that his references went right over the heads of most people. I remember during one game, Dennis Miller was referencing an offensive lineman whose job was in jeopardy and said, this guy's got a sword of Damocles hanging over his head. I did not know what a sword of Damocles meant. I had no idea if it was a reference to the court of Dionysus II of Syracuse. And the only reason I know that's because I got the Wikipedia page up. At another game, one of the assistant coaches was run over by a player going out of bounds and his eyeglasses broke. And Dennis Miller made the quip, that guy goes through more eyeglasses than Mo Green. Which is a very obscure reference to the movie The Godfather. The point is, these references went over most people's heads, and it made them feel kind of stupid. But that's the point of references. That's the point of inside jokes and these kind of educated references. You're supposed to get them, and if you do get them, they bring a whole host of story and information to bear. In this week's message, we talked about the phrase, the Son of Man, which Jesus chooses and uses to describe himself more than 80 times in the gospel. It's by far, by far, the most common and popular name that Jesus refers to himself as. But this phrase, son of man, is really quixotic. It's actually a reference that's pregnant with Jewish history in the stories from the Old Testament. So if you were Greek or Roman, you just wouldn't have gotten it. You wouldn't have understood it like you or I. But if you were Jewish you would have seen that Jesus was trying to say something and communicate something about himself and his mission that was incredibly rich, powerful, and nuanced. This week, we're going to dive into that title, The Son of Man, and see exactly what Jesus was talking about. Let's dive in. All right, hey everybody, welcome to the afterward. I'm here with Jay Kim. Hey, man. Uh, we are in a sermon series called the I'm Terrible with Names. I'm terrible with Names. The titles of Jesus and why they matter. Yes. In this past week, we looked at this really strange, quixotic term, the Son of Man. Son of Man. Now, on its face, the term Son of Man just means a person, a human, a yeah. human being. Yes. And we talked about how in the ancient world, um, Caesar's pharaohs yeah they tried to claim and and, and grab kingship yeah and god and god and god status yeah. as as kings as pharaohs as leaders yeah and actually what's interesting if you think about divine right do you mm. remember the whole like in church history yeah yeah and and even in uh all throughout europe d- the kings tried to claim higher status than the priests in the church as divine right yeah yeah so it's it's not like a new thing. No, no. So it goes all the way back. Um, and like Caesar, I found this 
fascinating statue of Caesar. Augustus. Yeah, you were showing me. It's so interesting. Yeah. yeah. People it's, can Google it. It's yeah, really you can Google it. It's it's actually probably one of the most famous statues from antiquity. Yep. It's Caesar Augustus, and he's barefoot, which I don't know. I didn't know this, but that's a symbol of divinity. Yeah. I don't know why. Like yeah, shoes, yeah. shoes tied to the earth, yeah, maybe? or maybe holy ground type uh, conceptualization. You know, I don't know. But what's days. interesting is you can see in the statue, which was unearthed, that um, there's a there's a little figure riding a dolphin, yeah, grabbing yeah. his cloak, and that's Cupid, yeah. <laughs> which they say is like his little brother. So he's like the big brother. So that means his mom is divine. His mom yeah. is Venus in 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 the in the Roman or Aphrodite in the Greek, yeah, the goddess of beauty, right? And that they have the same. He's divine. Yeah, and um, the poet Virgil, from who was writing right around the time of Caesar Augustus, um, he's writing all this stuff. He's like, and listen to these quotes: "The one who is to come will be the divine king of salvation, mm. for whom mankind has waited. Mm. He will annihilate the evils of the past and free people from unceasing fear." Man. And then listen to this: "He will establish a universal empire of peace, yes, and will lead in the golden age for the blessing of a renewed humanity." I think when you get paid by the emperor to write poems, that kind of stuff happens. Yeah. Well, what's fascinating to me, too, is uh, people don't think about this a lot, but um, the language of the early Christian church in the way they talked about Jesus was not whipped up out of thin air. It was a co-opting of pagan deity language, Mm -hmm. you know, sort of used to to imply explicitly uh declare really that the caesars were gods and the christians co-opt that language and just replace caesar with jesus Jesus. yeah yeah and it's not it's not manipulation i mean it's truth telling yes they're basically saying yes you know rome the pax romana you know we learned about that in history class yeah yeah uh the the peace of rome all of that language what, they're, what the early Christians are doing, they're essentially saying, you know, that yearning, that longing you have as just a human being um, for peace and for renewal and for uh, new, new heavens, new earth, new creation, new humanity in the language of Virgil, you know, that, uh, that a godlike figure or God himself would come and lead us into a golden age, all those sorts of things. You know, the Christians basically take that language and say that yearning and that longing is so so right it's so spot on we need that but the one who has come and is coming again to to lead us into that new age is not caesar right it's not any earthly king or emperor yeah it's this carpenter's son from nazareth right who is who is god you know there was a coin i found in antiquity and and you can actually buy it for 4.5 million dollars jay so if you want that true yeah you can buy it it's an actual coin it's an actual inscription because you said hey there's this coin um, and I was looking through your notes, and I was like, I wonder if this is... You can actually buy it. Man. And it's inscribed with this. It's a, it's an advent coin yeah. to celebrate a 12-day celebration after Augustus's um, coronation. Yeah. And on it, the minted advent coin reads in, in Latin, yeah. salvation is to be found in none other save <laughs> Augustus. Yeah. And what does that immediately go to yes. as a Christian? Acts four twelve, yep. where Peter says, "Yes, there is no other salvation is to be found in no other name save Jesus." Jesus I yeah. mean, it's just he's taking an ad. It would be like a political slogan oh, of absolutely. the day. Yeah, yeah, yeah. You begin to see when you just read a little bit of the literature from 
um, you know, the ancient Greco-Roman world and the way mm-hmm. they talked about their kings and emperors, it, you don't have to do a lot of digging. Like, it's pretty blatant yeah. how much of it sounds like New Testament language, and yeah. that's intentional. And then when we realize that the early Christians did that, it makes way more sense to us why they were persecuted. Yeah. I mean, what they were doing was provocative, uh, subversive, yeah. and scandalous, you know? I mean, they were essentially like telling the empire, you're wrong. Yeah. You know, a king has come, but it's not the one who sits in power in Rome. It's Christ, you yeah. know, who was crucified and resurrected and ascended. That has uncomfortable edges, for anyone living within any country. Yeah. That country should not be our primary allegiance. That's especially right. when it conflicts with the kingdom of Christ's king kingdom values. Yeah. Um, but man, so so much there. So anyway, the point is ancient people, um, ancient rulers, ancient pharaohs, they tried to ascend up that ladder. Yes. And they tried to seize that term son of God mm-hmm. for themselves. Now, there is a son of God. But ironically, the Son of God doesn't use that term. The true of, Son of God. The true Son of God, the actual Son of term, God, yeah. the one who is Jesus. He doesn't use that term as much. He actually chooses another term that he refers to himself more than 80 times. Yeah. 32 times in Matthew, 14 in Mark, 26 in Luke, 10 in John. Yeah. And he purposely chooses another title, not Son of God. Not that Jesus does not accept that title or that that title isn't true. we got to right. be clear about that. Yep. He is absolutely divine. Mm-hmm. He's absolutely God's son. Yes. He is, even that John 3.16, um, for God so loved the world that he gave his only beloved. That word beloved means that there, he and God are monogenes, right? Yeah. Mono, the same genus, genet, the same essence. Yeah. They have the same essence. Yeah, Jesus is God. He is he God. He is the son of God, but intentionally for a particular reason to reveal something about himself and his mission and the way he goes about his mission. Yeah. He has a, a different phrase that he prefers during yes. his earthly ministry. That to, he chooses. To reference himself. And it's called the son of man. Yeah. But we talked about this a little bit, but I want to I want to dig a little bit deeper into this because in essence, I do feel as though um, we could spend, and this would be, I think we would just geek out for too long and I think we'd probably lose people because the heart of it is Jesus, who was God, humbled himself. And so therefore yeah. we, as Paul says in Philippians, we have to humble ourselves. Yeah. We have to be people who are humble. But this term son of man is actually like Jesus. I, here's the, I'm going to throw an analogy by you. You tell me if you think this works. It's almost like Jesus saying, I'm Frodo mm. or I'm Han Solo. Mm-hmm. And if you have not seen Star Wars or have not read Lord of the Rings, that that phrase doesn't make any sense. This Greek, this phrase is so uncommon in the Greek. Mm. It's so uncommon that the only way an ancient Greek reader would have understood this term "son of man" because it's it's very rare. It's very weird. It's very yeah. rare. Yeah, is the only way that they could have made sense of it is if they had a Jewish friend who said, "Actually, I know where that phrase is from." Yeah, yeah. It's this really weird quixotic phrase that's found in the Book of Daniel and a little bit in Ezekiel. Yeah. And it's not common, it's not Greek, it's not Roman, it's super Jewish. Yeah. And so it's like a it's like an Easter egg. I think that Jesus is actually bringing that entire story to bear. Yeah. When you hear Han Solo or when you hear Frodo, it means something because you have the entire story. The story yeah. And so I thought it would be I, I mean, kind of I wish that we could have spent more time really delving into 
the origin of this very unique, because Jesus chooses this term on purpose. I didn't choose this term. Right. Jesus does. Yeah. And it's not just imbued with this idea of his humanity or his condescension, which it is. It is. But it's also imbued with the history of the Old Testament. It's imbued with the story of the Old Testament. Yeah. So does that, do you think that that's worth getting into or do you think that that's accurate or? Yeah, yeah, I do. I mean, so son of man, um, it's the phrase is in Ezekiel a lot, but, uh, you know, and we don't have time um, nor the skill really to deep dive into this. But it's fairly clear, according to almost all scholars unanimously, that Jesus uses the phrase to, in particular, attach himself, like you said, to a very Jewish um, understanding of the phrase pertaining to something that was happening in exile uh, as the story unfolds, in particular, in the book of Daniel. Yeah. When Daniel has yeah. a vision, yeah. a very particular and fantastical vision yep. that then connects to both Jesus's sort of real-time reality of living as an oppressed people in yeah. the Roman Empire. Yep. And then beyond that, the sort of freedom he intends to bring to the cosmic oppression, yes. the cosmic, yes. impo- imper- you know, the sort of powers that be which lorded over humanity and to free people from that. In that vision, it says, I'm going to read some, some yeah. scripture just because it's interesting. Yeah. Daniel, Daniel's, so the background of Daniel is that, and Ezekiel, yeah. are both theological responses to the persecution of the Babylonian empire. Yes. And these, and these prophets were given specific visions to help God's people who were in exile. Yeah. And so the question, one of the questions is, is God still with us? Yeah. Has he abandoned us? Right. We are not in Jerusalem. We don't have our temple. Our land has been lost? Yeah. Is God given up on us? And we've talked about this before on, on this podcast. The loss of land, we don't quite understand. Yeah, it's a you know, big deal. For us, it feels pretty technical. I yeah. mean, I think there's a little bit of relating if, you know, um, you can't pay your mortgage and the bank takes the house back. You know, there's the grieving of like, man, we've lost our home. Mm-hmm. Well, if you you got to multiply that by like a million and you begin to sort of begin to scratch the surface of how significant it was for God's people in the Old Testament to be displaced from their land. We have to remember when they're rescued out of Egypt, they are rescued out of Egypt because they are being led to a promised land, land right? A land that has been Blowing promised them with milk by and God. Honey. Yeah. And so there is a connection between their living in the land and flourishing in the land with God's blessing and favor upon them. Yeah. So the loss of land or displacement from their land, living in exile, for them is not just, oh man, we lost property. For them, it's we we've lost the favor of God. Yeah. Are we even God's people yeah. anymore? Yeah. 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 Um, and so in this moment, Daniel has this vision yeah, because he's in this foreign land. And, and here's what it says. That there's this figure appears. It's a mysterious. It's called the Son of Man, this phrase, yeah. this Hebrew phrase, the yeah. Son of Man. Ben Adam. It, it literally means son of a, of of a person, human. of a human, yeah. son of a human. And so it's weird. It says, here's what it says in Daniel 7, 14. Uh, the Son of Man, the Son of Man, this figure, was given authority and glory and sovereign power. Mm. All nations and peoples of every language worshipped him. 
His dominion is an everlasting dominion that will not pass away, and his kingdom is one that will never be destroyed. Yeah. So what's interesting to me is obviously that's king language, right? That's a ruler. But what's also interesting is all through Daniel, it's not just a king figure, but listen to this. Uh, there's another there's another role here, and that is that he listens to his people. Mm. And so that is, um, let me let me try to find it here. Where is it that he listens? I got I, this is interesting to me. Hold on, I gotta find it. Oh my gosh. I'm sorry. We can keep recording. No, no, it's all good. Here it is. It says, "Your words were heard, and I have come in response to them." And so this son of man, this son of man is is a king, but he's also like a priest. Yeah. And he's going to represent God's people to God and represent God to God's people. So he's like this intermediary, but he's also this powerful ruler. And then what's what's fascinating is that these two dual roles of king and priest, man, you could write books on that, right? Mm. So Jesus is basically saying, you remember that weird character in, in, in Daniel, that yeah. vision? That weird, powerful kingdom, king that has a kingdom, but also a priest that's representing God to his people yeah. who hears their prayers, their yeah. cries. I'm that guy. Yeah. So, and, and so N.T. Wright once, um, he wrote this. The conclusion is that Jesus finds in Daniel a paradigm of suffering, enthronement, and authority that he utilizes to describe his own journey hmm. and interpret himself. And in the Danielic figure of the Son of Man, he sees himself as the enthroned figure in the heavenly vision as the representative of the saints of the Most High. Yeah. So it's really, really fascinating to me that Jesus, there's so much going on here. Yeah. There's king-priest stuff. Yeah. And, and also, if you think about Daniel, it's the juxtaposition of this Son of Man and Nebuchadnezzar. Yeah. Who at that point is the most powerful man, I think, on the planet, yeah. probably. Yeah. He's the wealthiest. Arguably, yeah. Arguably. Yeah. And then you know the story, like he decides that he's actually God. Yes. And then God humbles him. Yeah. And he turns into um, kind Le- of a, less than human. Kind of turns into a beast, a I beast. guess. Yeah. 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 Which I think is also a very fascinating juxtaposition. Son of man. Uh-huh. You know, again, on the surface, it feels like a ho hum phrase. Just a human being, son of a human, mm-hmm. you know? Um, but juxtaposed against what happens when uh, corruptible power or the hunger for corruptible power takes a hold of Nebuchadnezzar as sort of an archetype yeah. of what happens to people when they want to deify themselves. Um, he actually becomes less than human. He becomes subhuman. When we becomes, seize and grab. Yeah. You pointed out a, a famous painting. Yeah. Uh, is William Blake, isn't it? I think so. Yeah. Yep. Um, and we this is a podcast, so it's going to be hard to show that. Yeah, here, let me look it up so that people can can. It is Blake. Um, the painting is just called Nebuchadnezzar, and it's it's haunting. And yeah, by William Blake. And um, yeah, I would not show your kids, but it, it's uh, it, it's a visual imagery, you know, depiction of sort of the story. He becomes subhuman. He becomes less than yeah. human. And yeah, you know, I love the I love the N. T. Wright quote there because he, he talks about how the the Daniel paradigm 
in the Daniel paradigm, Jesus finds three things, you know, the paradigm of suffering, enthronement, and authority. Mm -hmm. And that first piece is the piece that flips power on its head. Yeah. You know, um, at the time, and even still to this day, when we think of those who rise to power, we typically think of enthronement and authority. We don't use enthronement language because we don't have kings and that feels archaic. Yeah, yeah. But what is what is a presidential inauguration? inauguration. It's, it's enthronement. It's a sort of enthronement. Yeah, totally. This person is the most powerful person in the world now. We still have you know, a king. We, so, yeah. yeah we, still, we still vote for a king. <laughs> yeah. That's what we want. So, right? yeah. um, but Jesus, the Daniel figure, and then Jesus embodies this. You know, this is the sort of economics of God's kingdom. It's yeah. the thing that makes it stand so far apart from all earthly kingdoms. Like our king enters through by the by, by way of suffering. Yeah. You know, he, he he descends on our behalf. Rather than a fixation on elevation, he begins at the highest point possible. He is God. He's the Word. In yeah. the beginning was the Word yeah. and the Word was with God and the Word was God, right? He's always been God. And he intentionally in the in the words of philippians paul's text in philippians you know he empties himself and he humbles himself so okay so this is really fascinating to me because when i think of suffering at the suffering servant i think isaiah language you know Mm -hmm. because that's Mm -hmm. probably most clear but you're saying the very act of coming down of condescending of leaving heaven of emptying himself yeah is itself exposing yourself to suffering yeah i think i'm stretching the biblical intention, not meaning, but the biblical, the intention of the biblical writers. So Isaiah 53, the suffering servant, um, that is, I believe, very specific to the passion of the Christ. Yes, yes. Right? So I'm not saying that that's what the biblical writers intend. What I mean is when we look, when we think about just the English word suffering and pain and um, sacrifice, yeah, I think the incarnation is a part of that whole journey. Yeah, totally. For him to come down. It's suffering as a in, in human. a sense. It's certainly less comfortable than heaven yes. being the enthroned king. Right. I mean, he's right. born in a, a tiny empire. He's yeah. born on hay. Yeah. He's he he's he has to walk and deal with poverty. Yeah. He has to flee as a refugee as a young child. Yeah, he experiences life, the ups and downs of it All of as it. a human, as the scripture. And then of tell course us. at the end, the passion. I mean yeah. well, when even before the passion, think about all the times he's rejected. Yeah, totally. People hurt him. Almost killed. Almost killed multiple times. Yeah. Um, and then, of course, he is. Yeah. He's tortured and then killed yeah. in the most cruel way possible. Yeah, abandoned. Abandoned and betrayed. Which is why the scriptures tell us, man, there's nothing, there's nothing we go yes. through that he can't relate to. I mean, yeah. He went through it all. So in a, in a real sense, his decision, Jesus' decision to condescend, to, to, to seek humility, is itself going to lead to suffering. Yeah. That which is not a thing I had tied together. When I think of humility, I think of somebody being nice to those who are or using their power to help other people. And yeah. it is that. Yep. But if you think about it, if you use your power to help other people, you use your resources, you're going to lose out on some of those resources. Yes. There's going to be a modicum of suffering, I suppose, you could say, or loss. Because yep. you're giving up so that others might have. I mean, every parent understands this. Yeah. We give up sleep. Yeah. For the and now we do it willingly. Yeah, yeah. And it's a joy, and it actually makes us more human. 
Yeah. More like God. And if we just grab and hoard, we become Scrooge McDuck's, we become William Blake's painting of Nebuchadnezzar. Yeah. Or, sorry, the biblical portrait of Nebuchadnezzar, yep. which says he eats grass like an oxen. That's yeah. We become animals, right? Yeah, yeah. So that's, that is, that's worth considering. Yeah, I, I mean, there's that phrase. There's some books t- with this title, too. It's fantastic. You know, the, in the kingdom of God, the way up is down. Yeah. You know, another way to put it might be, um, you know, the path to be human is humility. Mm. It's not power grabbing, grabbing climbing, or, yeah. stepping on others to get higher. It's actually to bend down low. When you think about Jesus, what are some of your favorite aspects of his humility that oh, inspire man. you? Yeah. Like just as you mentally traipse through his life as recorded by the Gospels. Yeah. Holy smokes. There's so much. I mean, you mentioned it in your teaching at South Hills. The, um, you know, the way he interacts with people and in particular who he chooses very intentionally to interact with. I mean, he spends time with uh, the most ostracized, marginalized people groups of, yeah. of his day. Yeah. You know, so that right there is probably the thing that other than like the passion, you know, and sure, his sure. actual of course, of course, suffering of course. And, and torture and death. Um, yeah. Who he, I mean, you know, we, we both quoted that, that John Dixon quote that humility is, you know, the, the intentional sort of choice to forego status, deploy our resources, and then use our influence for the good of others yeah. before ourselves. Yeah. And I think we see Jesus doing that constantly throughout his Almost life. Almost all the time, it feels like. And it is always, the key there is for the good of others before himself. Yeah. And the, that, that word, others... Who's included in in others is mind blowing. Yeah, you know it's all it's everyone people, almost. Yeah, it's it's and it's a lot of people that no one else would have done that for. Totally, and um, that that's really moving to me. Yeah. Does okay? So um, does that mean as we follow Jesus? Do you think that that means we should have an eye toward those, especially who are down? downtrodden down below ostracized hurting or do you think that that's does that skew us do you think that there's a preference do you when you read the stories and encounters of jesus do you see a preference toward or an extra time spent or an extra eye toward those who are on the bottom rungs of society yeah or is it just kind of like every he pays attention probably to everybody but the gospel writers have chosen to Wow, that's a good question. Yeah. Because it does seem like he is just as comfortable with the uppity-ups as he is with the downity-downs. I mean, he, he, for goodness sakes, he interacts with Pilate and Caiaphas. I mean, these are leaders and rulers. Yeah. and But then he also interacts with the downity-downs. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. Yeah, that's a great question. I think there's probably some nuance there. I do think it's undeniable that the gospel writers, for a very particular reason... um, choose to highlight how Jesus, you know, the scandal of his relationship. Yes. They highlight that yes. quite a bit. Um, and it is scandalous, you mm-hmm. know, much more so in context than the way we read it with modern Western eyes. Yeah. So, yeah, I do think, I don't know if preference is the right word. I think it could be. But more than preference, it just seems that Jesus has a very particular mission in mind. And his mission, a part of the mission, is to completely deconstruct the boundaries that yeah. society and culture had 
created between who's in, who's out, and to expand those boundaries far beyond anyone's imagination. Yeah. That those that, you know, culture at large would have deemed completely outside of, yeah. you know, the circles of belonging, if you will, Jesus erases those boundaries. He's yeah. like, no, 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 no. Like, these people are all in. The line between in and out is not the line you've created yeah. as a culture. Yeah, yeah, yeah. It's simply... Um, you know, it's centered around me. Yeah. And I choose those lines, you know. So at the same time, I, I, I think, like you said, it's not that Jesus is like, I hate those <laughs> who have their lives together. No. I only spend time. You know, I, right, I love right, that right. story. And, and here's what's really fascinating. I think what Jesus does is he reveals that nobody has their life together. You know, yeah. therefore, all, all of us, us need, need Jesus. the expanding yeah. boundaries of sure. his love. And Jesus is infinite because he is God. He is infinite in his ability and capacity to love. I think that's the struggle for us yeah. as followers of Jesus. If we are becoming more Christ-like every day and the fruit of the Spirit by his Holy Spirit is, is you know, growing and expanding in our lives, then our ability and capacity to love will also expand. But we are far more limited than yeah. Jesus, which is why when we read the stories, we sort of ask those questions. Who did he prefer? But in reality, I don't think Jesus preferred or chose any over the others. I think he is expanding the boundaries. And, you know, there's that fascinating story. The rich young ruler comes to Jesus and he's like, Rabbi, teacher, what should I do? I've done everything, you know, kept every letter of the law. Yeah. And Jesus is like, well, go, you're rich. Go sell everything you have and then come follow me. And the rich young ruler is really sad. He's not angry. He's sad and he um, can't do it, you know, and he leaves. What's really interesting about that story, I forget which gospel, but one of the gospel writers tells us that Jesus looked at that rich young ruler and loved him. It's like so random. Before he gives him that. Before he gives it, yeah. The command. Which is so weird. But so what that means is gospel writers can't read into Jesus' mind. At some point after that, he was sitting with his disciples. He was telling him, remember earlier today, you know, they were sitting by the campfire eating fish or whatever. He's like, man, I looked at him and I had nothing but love for that guy. Right? I mean, And I I really wish he would have made a different decision. yeah, Yeah, and I think that's really important because sometimes we're like, Jesus hates the rich people and he just loves the poor people. It's like, no, Jesus is here for for. For everyone, yeah. because not because there is a delineating line between like well off and not well off, but because there is no line. It's we're, a, we're all yeah. we're all poor in spirit. We're all broken. It's almost is it, it. Well, it's interesting because he's going to the uppity ups, the highest highs with yeah. the pilot, and then you know, and then the lowest of the lows. Yeah, I made a list. Um, the gospel marks the shortest gospel. It's yeah. like sixteen chapters. Um, and I made a list, and in that book, it appears to me I made a list, I, and I could be wrong, of 22 people or groups of people who are marginalized or social outcasts. And so here's just the first 11 as I march through Mark. This is the first couple chapters. The demon-possessed man. So obviously being afflicted by the demonic realm would have implied you were cursed by God, right? Yeah. Peter's mother-in-law. I don't know if that's really a big deal in the ancient world, but mothers-in-law, you know, male-dominated <laughs> society, I don't know. The sick in the town of Capernaum, yeah. right? The, the, they're, they're seen as cursed. The man with leprosy. Yeah. Leviticus 13.2 says if you have a disease like leprosy, you have to be excluded from the community, yep. right? The paralytic on the mat, right? Yeah. You would have been ceremonially unclean. Levi, the tax collector, boy, he's the, he's the worst. 
He's a tax collector under Herod Antipas and yeah. the ruler of Galilee, and they were he would have been an outcast because yeah. he would have actually been expelled from the synagogue because yeah. they were seen as unclean because they touched the idolatrous coins bearing the name and the image of Caesar, right? Mm. The man with the shriveled hand, remember? Yep. The, he, he probably couldn't have been able to work. The garrison demon-possessed man who the town tried to chain up in the catacombs, up in yeah. the tombs, and yeah. the bleeding woman... Um, again, Leviticus 15 says that anyone having contact with her would have been ceremonially unclean. Yeah. And so she's unclean. She would have been shunned. The Syrophoenician woman, yeah. she's from the non-Jewish Gentile region of Tyre and Sidon, two twin cities that were filled with unscrupulous merchants and the center of religious idolatry. There was a saying in the ancient world, what happens in Tyre and Sidon stays in Tyre and Sidon. <laughs> I'm kidding. That's not true. And then Jairus' daughter, which she's a child. Yeah. Um, so... And look what he how look how he interacts with each of them. I mean, he heals or helps or comes to or di- I mean, it's it's unbelievable. Yeah, he touches those All who should them. not be touched. Yeah, he, he speaks to those who should not yeah. be spoken to. Yeah. He eats with those you're not allowed to eat with. Yeah. He enters into fellowship with those that you're not allowed to enter. This is yeah. staggering humility. Yeah, yeah. There's been a lot written here about, um, you know, in the in the Jewish mind. Uh, um, you know the idea, the concept of being unclean. Yeah. You know the understanding was that if the unclean touched the clean, the clean became unclean. That's why yes. every one of the, almost every one of these stories, You're there was yeah, there was yeah. an ostracization. Yeah. Because the unclean could not mingle with the clean because the unclean made the clean unclean. That's that was always the direction, which is why we had to kick all the unclean people out. Yeah, and you know, scholars have have written extensively about the beautiful, the be- beautiful sort of flipping uh, upside down of that whole concept in Jesus. Yeah, that Jesus is ult- the ultimate clean person. Unbelievable, and he is so clean. He comes and his cleanliness, or a better yet, a better way to put it or understand it is his holiness. Yeah, uh, or his purity. You know, his otherness actually makes the unclean clean because it doesn't work that way in any other way if something is totally pure and then any dirt gets on it it's suddenly impure that's right that's why clean i mean even in silicon valley we have clean rooms right yeah with all these scrubbers you know and this well yeah even like think about the covid pandemic we're in now it's like it's not like those who have vaccines can cough on those who have COVID and then they're vaccinated. It doesn't work that way. Right. That's not you the, know? Yeah, well, however you feel about vaccines, right. it's not a political it, that, statement, but it doesn't work that way. Right. What happens is those who have the disease have to be sequestered, to yeah. quarantined. Yeah. But so, Jesus is like, no, he's coming and bringing the, the holiness. He's there. bringing the COVID of healing. <laughs> oh no. Oh no. We're going to get angry going, emails. going off the rails. Hey, there's one more thing about that. As you were talking, it reminds me of, there's this moment and, and scholars have written about this too. Um, and Dr. Gary Bashirs, who who leads the cohort I'm in, yeah, yeah. he talks about this intertestamental history, and meaning between the between old the old and, and the new testament. So testament. Yeah. So they lose their land, they lose their temple, yeah. And so the religious leaders start to think, and they're like, "Well, what's wrong with us? Well, obviously we didn't keep the covenant. Listen, yeah. listen to what the prophets said. Yeah. So if we kept the pro- if we kept our covenant, if we were pure, if yeah. we did it right, yep." Then God would restore his blessing. Mm. We could get our stuff back. 
and not just get our stuff back, but get God back at our land, become God's people. Yeah. So it's this really noble. So the 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 Pharisees and the Sadducees they they want this stuff. Yeah. But then what comes out of that is. But we have to have everyone keep everything all the time. Yes, militant Milit- So if yeah. you don't, yeah. you are out. Yeah. And there's no hope for you. You're cut off. So right. there, there, there's, there's a sense in which the Pharisees' impulse is to restore the blessing of God. I'm actually sympathetic toward it, you know, sure. because they, but they take, believe they can earn it somehow or work toward yeah, it, work toward it, and, yeah. and and that if everyone just works hard enough, yes, they can get it. That's where they go wrong. Not in the desire, no, not in the desire. But but even the promise in Ezekiel is no, no, you can't do this, people. You failed a million times. You need a new heart. Yes, and the day is coming when God will write His precepts not on paper. His commands, not on stones of tablet, but on your heart. Yeah. And then you'll be able to follow it. That day's not here, but that day is coming. It's the promise. Yeah, and by his spirit that he would replace our hearts of stone with hearts of flesh. That's exactly yeah. right. Right. Yeah. So th- they just, the Pharisees, but their impulse is right. We yeah, have to be longing. Yeah, yeah, we they studied the scriptures. They understood it. They yeah. they understood that there's 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 ways to live with God that have to be taken seriously. Right. They understood that sin has a corrupting and defiling influence, yeah. and we have to get rid and of it. This is all still true. That, it is. This yes. is one of the dangers on the other side yeah. of the cross, and particularly in the sort of hyper individualism of our day and age. Yeah. Is like. Well, it's all grace, so I do nothing, and I'm, you know, or even worse yet, kind of like the, the overly high view of humanity, like, yeah. you know, we I'm, can solve all problems, and I'm awesome, yeah. you know, I, how dare you tell me I'm not awesome, yeah. or how dare you tell me th- to not have sex with my girlfriend before yeah. we're married, you know, yeah, like yeah. these things like fly in the face of cultural norms, yeah, you know, and it makes Christianity feel archaic and barbaric and stuff but yeah finding that sort of it's not even middle ground but that transcendental ground yes is is it's not the left way or the right way it's the jesus way yes, yeah it's yeah, the gospel yeah, it's way. A good way to put it um but yeah and so i i think getting back to the humility of jesus and the son of man that he's the king Yes. But he's also our priest. Yeah. And that we can get cleansing through him. He can give us a new heart and a new yeah, spirit. He mediates. He mediates. Things, yeah. This is the solution the Pharisees were looking for. Right. He He's standing right in front of them, and they're mad at him because he seems to be breaking their purity laws. Right. Because to their understanding, if you touch something impure, you defile yourself. Yeah. And he's like, well, that's true, except for me. Yeah. I'm so pure. I'm like the sun. Yeah. Like something comes into the sun, it burns up. Yeah. At the end of story. There's yeah. not my goodness and radiance and beauty and holiness is so powerful it can actually drive away yeah. all these things. Yeah. Powerful stuff. Okay, so now final thoughts, implications. You went we ended with Philippians two. Yes. Um, that have the same attitude as Christ Jesus. Yeah. So just as you think about the folks in our community. Many of whom, and I know these folks, uh, we speak with them. They're yeah. trying really hard yeah. to live this out. What's your encouragement to them pastorally for what that might mean? To live with the same heart and same mind as Christ Jesus, who did not consider equality with God something to be grasped, but rather emptied himself and took the position of a servant or a slave, yeah. and even even to death on a cross. What does that mean for us to take that, ad- have the same attitude? Yeah. Yeah, I think the first thing that comes to mind is that in order for us to give, we have to receive. Mm. So 
even when it comes to, you know, what we talked about with the Son of Man and um, Christ's, the, the model and example of humility and, and self-giving love and the expanding of the boundaries of who belongs in God's family, all those sorts of things, we have to receive that in order to give that. Mm. Or another way to put it would be that we have to increase in our awareness of that if we are to live effectively as those sorts of people who extend, humbly extend love and care yeah. and generosity in those ways. You have to be full in order to overflow. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. And, you know, I think typically we think of it as like, well, I get it. You know, yes, Jesus did those things. I get it. So I, I guess I should just be able to live as that sort of person every day. But in order for us to live as that sort of person in increasing measure day by day, I, I really do think we have to come back day by day to the realization an increasing level of awareness, which hopefully will lead to expanding levels of gratitude toward Christ and his um, humility and the way his humility led him to, um, you know, pursue us and chase after us and receive us when we did not deserve to, yeah. to be a part of his family. So uh, I think that that's really important. You know, why, why do we... Why do Jenny and I take an anniversary trip or go on an anniversary dinner every January? I mean, I know I'm married to her. I know she's my wife. I know it every day. Why do I celebrate that, you know? Yeah. Well, it's this annual reminder of the commitment yeah. we made. It's a celebration of the life that God's given us together. It is more than anything else for me a, a, a day or a few days or a dinner, whatever it might be, to pause um, and to increase in my awareness, which inevitably leads to an increase in my um, gratitude uh, for the relationship that I have with her, that she chose me. Right. You know, when I asked her but to she marry said me, yes. she said that, yes. That, which is a miracle also. Yeah. You're celebrating <laughs> yeah. God's miracles. Yeah. It's just like, <laughs> you know, it proves to me that there is a God. So, uh, and I think it's the same way, but yeah. not, not just year to year, but yeah. Day by day. Yeah. You know? So that's the first thing I would say. In order to give, we have to receive. In order to overflow, we have to be full. So mm. whatever that looks like, it sounds so simple, but it is like this is one of the reasons why daily time in prayer and in the word and um, in worship even. Yeah. You know, yeah. we uh, yeah. on Spotify, we have yeah. the Westgate Weekly playlist where Mark and our worship team, they put all the songs we're going to sing every Sunday. It's as simple as that. It's like listening to some of those lyrics that remind us, you know, of yeah. what Christ has done for us. So that that's the first thing that comes comes to mind. Yeah. What about you? Um, that's really good. Yeah. Um, I think the, the thing that's been striking me is there was this moment where, um, I forget who, well, I do know who it is, but I'm not going to say. There was a president in fairly recent history that was inaugurated, and as this president walked into the office for the first time office of president, he asked for a couple of clergy to give some brief remarks mm. at the you know at the cathedral that's close to the White House. And yeah. so um, there was a, a pastor that we're familiar with, Andy Stanley, who was invited, one of the ones, to, to give a brief message, and he said... His remark, his, his sermon title was, um, what to do when you're the most powerful person in the room. And so what he said is, he gave Jesus his example, and he said, you look for who's the least powerful, mm. and then you try to figure out how to help the people in the room. Yeah. Wow. And now what's interesting about that is every single person in that room, all those government officials, were 
for the most part, in most meetings, in most areas, in most realms, they're going to be the most powerful person in that room, right. including the president-elect, who was about to become the, the most powerful person in any room he entered, pretty much. Yeah. And I've been, I've been really thinking about that. That's what Jesus does. And that, that, that little, I know it's an invitation to a president, and I'm not the president, but I do have people who I enter into rooms with. Yeah, yeah. And how can I look toward them? How can I empower them? That's really been transformative. That's so good. Because it really, it's practical, but it also, it checks my heart. Like, because sometimes, if I'm honest, I want to be in rooms with people more powerful and climb up. Yep. You know, I want to be in the right rooms with sure. the right people, yeah. you know, self-aggrandizing, self-promotion. Right. And this, um, Jesus doesn't do a whole lot of self-promotion. Correct, <laughs> yeah. And I, I think that that's really beautiful. Yeah. So that, to me, has that. been, even in our staff meetings and, like, in our meeting, you know, yep. like, who, who do I, what, how can I help? How can yeah. I help? How can I help? Uh, that's so good. I think that applies to everyone listening. Yeah. You know, in, in your with your classmates at work and your work groups or your office at home on play dates with other parents <laughs> all and of it. kids yeah, all of in it. your kids classrooms yep, yeah yep. absolutely that's good well jay thanks for talking about humility with me i think this is probably the best humility podcast that's ever been done in the history of the world <laughs> <laughs> i also if you if you if you'd like to uh, read my new book it's called i hate self promotion it's available on amazon <laughs> i hate self promotion and how you can too <laughs> oh man all right well thanks jay oh, thanks for yeah time. thank you all right bye just want to say thanks to jay kim for stopping by join us next week when we delve into the third title of jesus the son of david <laughs> that's me and david kim will be here so it'll be two davids talking about david it'll be awesome it'll be an all david fest Join us next week, and we'll see you then.